Right, and you know that Sorkin wrote a play that Des directed. Really? Yeah, it's called The Farnsworth Invention. It was after Jersey Boys. Uh, It's about Uh the early years of RCA. Yes. RCA Victor? Yeah, David Sarnoff and and people like that. It was a great, great, great play. I loved it. My End Will Be Brought to You by Pellegrino. Perfect. Amen. Yes. My End Will Be... Brought to you by Bottled Joy, All right. which go. I haven't even gotten through half of what I've needed to get through today. What so. do you got, Jude? Always with the jugs. I had my water, but then I lost. Always with the jugs. Yeah. So, they like ex-liquid, jugs. liquid that already has happened. Were you expecting me to clap? Oh, yeah. If you can <laughs> clap, too, that would be great. Sorry. It's okay. You don't have to clap. I think... He doesn't have the clap doesn't work for me. Like in editing, I don't think it makes it doesn't work. Does it work for you? Yeah, Ron? I guess we miss it. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run this as a music director. Okay. Because that ca- that countdown out of tempo is never gonna work. But I'll get, <laughs> I'll give you a one, two, three, four in tempo, and then just go on the next one. Go on the downbeat. We'll all clap together. Here we go. Okay. One, two, three, four. Hi there. Hello. <laughs> Hi, David. Hi, Gia. This is this is a cool night. This is uh, we got. Um, oh, what a night! This oh, is, what a night! You are listening to Silhouettes JB podcast, the deepest dive into Jersey Boys one could ever take. The show and the movie, as you know, as if you've been listening to us so far, you know we we got characterization. You know, we got the music. We got the comparisons with the movie. Like we got everything. We got everything. Everything with the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the sky rolled all into one. Exactly. Um, I can't give you anything but love. There we go. Baby. I can't give you anything but love, daddy. Daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but we really – but you know what? You don't want to hear from us. You want to hear from our very, very special guest tonight. So let's just dive right in with his intro. He's – He's the man behind the podium. He's the genius behind the music and a master storyteller. We've got Ron Melrose in the Zoom studio with us tonight. I can't believe it. So for years, we've heard his name and we're blown away that he was able to arrange a sit down. That We were able to do this. It's nuts. Yeah, we both handle the sit downs and the bowling pins on this show. And what a C note this is. He wrote the vocal arrangements, the dance arrangements, and incidental music, and was the original music director and conductor for Jersey Boys. In addition, he's written arrangements and served on the music teams of the Broadway productions The Scarlet Pimpernel, Wonderland, Dr. Zhivago, A Bronx Tale, and Summer, the Donna Summer musical, just to name a few. Ron Melrose had his early beginnings in music, playing classical piano competitively. When he was in middle school, he was taking free music lessons at the University of Iowa, and for two years, he basically received a conservatory education without going to a conservatory. Amazing. Incidentally, he studied philosophy and not music at Harvard. He knows not only how to tell a story, he's also been 
quote unquote, averting musical theater emergencies since 1976, according to his email signature, hysterical. These days, when the world is not in an extended intermission, he travels all over, making sure things are up to snuff wherever a Dodgers theatrical production of Jersey Boys can be found. We are honored to have the maestro himself here on the podium with us. Please welcome Ron Melrose. Hey, guys. Hi. Hey. Hey. This hey. Is... Welcome to the party. You want a drink? You want some wine? Some nosh? I'm good. I see things from different points of view. And over the years that I've seen the show, I've noticed more and more when it comes to the arrangements, when it comes to the underscoring. And each time... I think about it, and each time I talk about it with someone, the name Ron Melrose always comes up. Oh, that was Ron's idea. Oh, that was Ron's brilliance, Ron Melrose. And I always was blown away by this idea and the fact that we started this podcast not even two months ago, and we've got you with us here right now is something so special that I can't it's it's hard for me to put into words how I feel at this moment. Part of it is that you have my brother in the trunk of your car. Yep. <laughs> With a With bullet, bullet in his head. head. <laughs> we, we do not, for the record, that's a joke, just everyone knows, we do not have those kind of connects. For the record, I don't have a brother. <laughs> well, there you have Even it. better. <laughs> Oh, but either but thank you so much already for sharing your humor, sharing your story with us. We we're so grateful that you're here. It'll be fun. Yes. So we were wondering if you could tell us um, a little bit about your um, growing up, playing piano, doing music, and having those lessons at the University of Iowa, and how that kind of transitioned into studying philosophy at Harvard. Sure. I mean, I grew up crazy about music. My family moved houses when I was five and there was an old piano left in the basement by the previous owners of the new house. And I sort of climbed up on the bench and started playing and that was it. They put my toys up on shelves a few months later because I only wanted to be playing the piano. Mm -hmm. And uh, didn't get lessons till I was in second grade. And... At first, it was uh, uh, sort of heading for a classical piano career. And then I stopped wanting to be a, a slave to technique, and I didn't feel like practicing three or four hours a night to improve my trill. Um, and I said, well, what else can you do with music? I don't want to give up, but I don't want to worship at the altar of classical technique either. So what I could do is accompany the choir. What I could do is accompany the school play. And that sort of turned into the twin careers I've followed ever since. When we were in Iowa City, the head of the music department there, uh, uh, somebody who came in into the department, called the faculty together and said, I want each and every one of you to identify a local kid and give them an hour a week, just as a sort of an outreach program that this music department will do for the community. I found out about it early and I kept signing up for things. And I had, within about a two to three year span, cello lessons and bassoon lessons and French horn lessons and harpsichord and organ and theory and counterpoint and technique and vocal pedagogy and um, vocal literature. I just, it was, it really was like a conservatory education as an after-school special. 
um, which freed me up when it was time to go to college to go, well, I already have the technique. I already have the, the <laughs> knowledge. I ended up in, in a philosophy degree. Part of this work I had in logic shows up here and the work I have in epistemology shows up here and the work I have in comparative religion shows up here. So I think it's just a good grounding. There was an article in 2007 with the Living Church magazine um, and also a blog called Upon the Sacred Stage where a woman named Lauren Yarger said about you, she said, I thought he was a nice Christian writer struggling to get by in New York. When I called to get together, you said, let's meet at my office in Radio City. Like Radio <laughs> City, and and she's like, and, he, and I thought like Radio City. Who is this guy? So she Googled you to find out that that was not who you were, but you were a force on Broadway. And so, what was your journey like to go from like more humble beginnings to Radio City? I got to be on Broadway pretty quickly, getting out of school. Yeah. What happened was, I left the Broadway scene for a while and started working in a Manhattan church. And while I was there, I had written some pieces, sort of one-woman shows that were church-related. And I think that's what Lauren Yarger found and sort of assumed that that was my one and only world. It, it was sort of both and. I was still in love with the theater. I was also in love with the church. And if I had an office at Radio City, it's because Des had called me in to do the Sinatra show there. And they offered me office space as part of... Uh, being the music director. It was called something like Sinatra, His Words, His World, His Way. It was a, gotcha. it was a huge um, Rockettes and an onstage 40-piece orchestra, and they had kinescope of Sinatra from his TV show, and the star of the show was dead, but also yeah. really talented, <laughs> and 40 feet high on the Radio City stage. Oh, incredible. When was that? I gotta say either 2002 or 2003. Probably 2003. But but you've been in the biz, you know, since the 70s. So There's so much that we want to talk about. David, go ahead. I know you have so many questions. I'm very old. No, you're not. (laughs) Well, well, there's just so... So you also worked together on Chivago. With with Richard Hester, you worked... Right, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, on Sweet Smell of Success, and you worked with Des again on Zhivago, which I saw and I loved. Um, you worked with Sergio on A Bronx Tale. Um, so, how, but had you worked with anyone else on the creative team? Anyone else on the creative team before? The only one, I, the only two, I guess, I'd worked with before Jersey Boys were Des on the Sinatra show, mm-hmm. and I had done an off-Broadway show uh, with Steve Orich as my orchestrator. So I pulled Steve into Jersey Boys. Um, to do that. I mean, I'm sure I had worked, Tara Rubin was the casting office for Jersey Boys. I used to be an audition pianist, so I'm sure I'd worked with her a number of times. Well, you're right. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I really, this was, a, this was when I met Sergio um, and a lot of Dez's core team, he tends to come back to the same people a lot. And so Jersey Boys was the first time for me and then I've seen a lot of those scoundrels again. It's very similar, like, like the Jersey Boys creative team family and um, like the SNL crew. They all stick together. You know, Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, David Spade, Chris Rock. They're always like they're in the same place. Same with Amy Poehler, Tina Fey. Like it, you guys, you guys stick together. And that's what's so great about Jersey Boys. And you can tell. And um, yeah. I think that's and what makes the show the show. I would love to ask you questions just about like 
like just technicalities and titles. Um, so what's the difference between being an associate and an assistant conductor? Is there a difference? Well, there's two, there's two things going on. Those are both terms from the contract, the every five years contract between the music union, Local 802 in New York, and the League of Theater Owners and Producers. They define and require you to have in a musical not only a conductor, but an associate conductor. And that associate conductor comes with certain tasks and certain financial bumps. Assistant conductor is optional, but it's in the contract. If you do use one, here's what it'll be. Pragmatically, you want the conductor, who is often but not always the music director, you want the conductor to be able to take a show off, sit out in the house, note from the audience perspective. So the associate's going to go on probably as much as once a week, once every two weeks at least. Whereas an assistant conductor, if you have one, is more or less an emergency. Oh my God, you're the only one in the building that can do this. And maybe we'll have one show a month or one show every two months just to keep you warm. Is that something that you always wanted to do? Like, did you want to be a music director? You know, I came to town. I'm not trying to be cute here. I came to town to be a composer, a theater composer. That's what I wanted. That's what I came to town for. Didn't happen right away, which was the predecessor to it didn't really kind of happen ever. And everything from dance arranging to audition piano to rehearsal piano to playing for dance classes, playing for Craig Cornelia's class, these were paying the bills and serving the art in other ways. The path from, well, you do something, you write the dance music, and then the next time you write the dance music and you're the associate conductor. And there's another show that goes, we have a dance arranger, but would you write the vocal arrangements? And would you be in the keyboard, but we already have our associate conductor? And you, you spend long enough at it, and somebody looks at you and says, would you like to be the music director? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and it really is, it's, it's who you know, too. How long before Sweet Smell of Success were you playing for Craig? Don't remember the chronology of that. They had more than one pianist. He'd, he would do right. a couple of sessions, a couple of classes every Monday night, a couple every Tuesday night. And I was sort of on the rota, but not the prime guy. Um, maybe a year or two. Okay. I certainly, certainly knew Craig. Um, also, do you, do you remember the order of Sweet Smell and Imaginary Friends? Those are the two shows that I did with Craig. And playing for his class was a separate thing. I think it, it probably started before any of the, the show work. That, that's the kind of loyalty that we were talking about. I mean, you had, that, you had that relationship with him, and then he was like, hey, you're a cool dude. We mesh. Let's work on a show together. And I think that's... that's is the, that how it happened? Pretty darn close. I mean, awesome. as the lyricist... He certainly couldn't impose me as music director without his composers being on board. Was that Marvin both times? I think it was. I had worked with Marvin on Smile. How was that? That was amazing in workshop and so hard in the Broadway production. In workshop, we had created something that was so beautiful. We ended up doing like five performances down at the West Beth Center. You know, lab performances, folding chairs. And we would end every one of those things with the whole room in tears. The audience, the cast, me. I mean, it, it was something else. And the 
sometimes the act of bringing something to Broadway and the necessary money and the necessary people that come with the money. I mean, you're not going to get a Broadway stage if the money isn't there and you're not going to get the money unless some people that have money get to say, yeah, but this is what I want for this money. I don't want to make producers the enemy. There are directors that think that. There are playwrights who think that. It's Mm -hmm. just that along with writing your check comes the right to have your opinion listened to. So sometimes you have people that aren't primarily creatives expressing creative opinions that carry a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that sitting in the chair right next to them isn't somebody who is creative, but who's darn wrong about the right tone for this or the right ending for that or whether that act two number should be cut or not. This has just been the ongoing debate for commercial theater for the last 10 or 15 years, probably because people don't like a lot of the stuff that's going on Broadway because it's movies, it's bio stuff, it's this, whatever, whatever the case may be. But the fact is you end up with a piece like Jersey Boys that takes everything that you think of a bio musical and it just like okay we saw how people did it before us but here's how we're gonna do it and because of that amazing script by rick and marshall and because of of your orchestration yeah me and gia talk about this conscious genius of that creative team and how everything everything gets gets thought of it was a really exciting creative room to be in um des really led his team he really had visions for it but he also i think assembled all the right people and he gave us a certain amount of rope he said you do what you do you're good at this bring it back into the thing i'll tell you when it doesn't work and, and so he sort of freed me up to build this cathedral of underscoring. It was the, the happiest time I'd ever had in the theater. You mean I get to decide what goes under there? I get to, and it was like, within reason. I want to make sure that stops by here. I, want to, I don't really like the energy you're giving. Try something else. So he guided. But I really got to come up with over and over and over again. And only a couple of times in La Jolla, I was in love with something I had done. And he went, yeah, you can't do that there. And I went, oh, come on. You let me put (laughs) three towers up and I'm trying to put the fourth tower. So it's got some, no, you can't do that there. And I'd call my wife, my uh, fiance at the time and go, you won't let, it's just, it's so frustrating and infuriating. And I got to tech and I looked at the moment. He was always right with the story he was telling with the visuals right there, with the story he was telling with the lighting and that would never have worked, what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Right. But he had, oh. the, he had the presence and the vision in all departments. He was good at talking to Howl about lighting as he was to talking to me about music. Right. And, he and got, it all comes together. And he got all of us really at the top of our game, and he got the best work out of us. From, like, La Jolla, before La Jolla, till now, um, were you working with the original sheet music to create the arrangements for the show? How did you do it? What was what did you hear? Okay. The the key to that isn't me. It isn't where I started. Okay. The key to that was permission again from Des not to be rigid 
about sit there, listen to these records and make sure we are singing exactly what they sang and try to get the orchestration as close to what they did. You know, I've worked on other, and I'm, I'll use the term without fear, jukebox musicals, where somebody in the creative or producing team said, this will only work if the audience thinks they're listening to the original record. And what we knew on Jersey Boys was, no, 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 no. Now, in some cases, I'm using really geeky music theater, th- uh, music theory things to help with the storytelling. In, in the season's original records, if you listen to what Nick is singing, Nick is the bass, he's always basically singing the root of the chord, which means he's traveling one 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 four four one one five 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 four one. All those root position chords give you a feeling of stability and stasis. Our whole idea was rushing forward, moving from the beginning of the show to Sherry in this toboggan ride that that had energy that way. So I would invert the vocal cords to put the third on the bottom or the fifth on the bottom just so the ear didn't rest, just so it keeps moving you along and you get a one chord with the one on the bottom where we want you to applaud. And if we don't want you to applaud after a number, we're going to do everything we can to not give you that chord and to stick in a key change that's going to keep you from that first clap. Um, So we're using all these ridiculous music theory 301 devices in a Broadway show to help get the effects that we were looking for. So it was that easy. (laughs) So how long did it take? It was astonishingly fast. First of all, no, we didn't start with sheet music. There were some published sheet music that wasn't even what was on the record. It was just what some guy in in Los Angeles wrote down when the seasons put out their original records. And then there were a few sketches that Gaudio's publisher got to me of um, stuff they had done. So basically the basis for the show was me transcribing from the records and then going to Des, are you sure I'm allowed to change this? Because I'd sure like to change this. The tempo thing that you talked about, it's not just making it faster for the sense of making it faster. It's that the world has sped up so much from 1963 to 2004. If you stop 100 people on a beach and you go, how fast does Sherry go? Just sing me eight bars. They're going to sing a lot closer to the Jersey Boys tempos than the original season's tempos because you're asking them now. And so things did speed up to feel like you were listening to the original, not to feel like you were listening to something faster. And incidentally, the world has sped up since 2004, which was La Jolla, to 2020. We've bumped, we bumped the Broadway tempos twice during the 13 years we were at the August Twice? Wilson. Yeah. When it, was the second time? When it started to feel too slow. Wow. No, we, originally we did tempos that were faster than the records, and then we'd been on Broadway for about four years, and I was noting the show, and... The conductor was looking at me, and I was, Where, this all feels sloggy. And I know you're on the tempos. Let's bump them. What songs specifically? You are blowing my mind. Well, songs specifically? The show. Just the show. The, the show felt like there was air in it. Originally, it was wow. air-free, and it was just like, bam, we're starting act one, bam, it's intermission. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there was time to think. Well, that's because in the intervening six years, people were thinking faster. Mm-hmm. They were used to thinking in shorter breaks. And we weren't, we weren't the toboggan anymore. We had to re-become the toboggan by speeding up from opening night. That, I mean, that's a luxury, a show to have a long enough run 
<laughs> that you could look at it and say, what we did opening night doesn't work anymore. Let's let's cook with gas. Because <laughs> yeah, you want you're after the same effect. Yes. It's not really the same set of facts. It's after we're not getting what we want, and it's not the audience's fault, and it's not our fault. It's just a faster world. So let's uh, let's play to that. That's simple. Go with the environment that you have, and then adjust. I love how that. many how many BPMs like on average for each song? Do you remember like like by the time you you guys closed how much? From when you opened to when you closed. I think the two times we bumped it, it probably was never more than three beats a minute on any given song. Usually one, sometimes two. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, I mean, more than that, and it would all feel fast. It's just sitting on sitting on the front edge of what felt like what it used to feel. Little little bumps. You know, it didn't take more than forty five seconds off the show. Right. And so, well, did you work with? With Bob Gaudio or Bob Crew at all, like during all of this, like to get, was there permission needed from them? Like, did they have the final well, call? Like, how did how did it work working this, with them? The story on that, they had been involved with Rick and Marshall writing the script, and they'd had some meetings with Des. When we got to La Jolla, they were not there. Bob had had uh, back surgery and was flat on his back in Houston. So the first time they saw the show, Gaudio, Crew, Frankie was opening night in La Jolla which gave us sort of an unbelievable free reign when you're dealing with living composers, living artists, to go, yeah, and I know that you would want that to be the way you had it, but we need to do this now. We sort of got to do that and then show them this is our vision of your vision, and thank God they were on board with it. Yeah. Gaudio said to me at one point, way, way late, a couple of years ago, it was a good thing we weren't in La Jolla because I would have insisted on some things. Oh, wow. So, how how neat that is that he knows himself that well and that he's <laughs> yeah. gracious enough to go, yeah, well, you know, you guys made some right choices. Thank God. Wow. I, like I wonder what he validation. Would've... Isn't that great? Yeah, that that's, felt wonderful. That's amazing. And we, 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 felt, we felt the same way when we met with you on Tuesday when we had shown you what we had come up with and you you were like you guys are on the mark you guys it's almost like so we 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 know how special that kind of validation can feel so that's imagine from bob from bob gaudio yeah imagine. well that's from our <laughs> scale you were already way as well established when you were doing Jersey boys <laughs> we're just we're here so mm-hmm. We, we, we need to take one step back. We've validated Gaudio, me, you. Now we have to do your podcast audience and go, you guys are special too. Trust your instincts. There we go. Okay. Now there we everybody's go. covered. Thank you. <laughs> From the maestro himself, guys. There you have it. Uh, well, I have to ask. So contrast to that, what was it like having to trim the show down for the Norwegian Cruise Line? Were you a part of those conversations? Absolutely. That was a riot. That basically got, everybody was busy. I forget what Des was doing. That was shunted off on Richard Hester with on the book and me on the score. And our only job was take it to 90 minutes, make sure it still feels like Jersey Boys. You don't have to have an intermission. So... Two, those were two, your marching orders. Those are our marching orders. Two shows didn't show up in the uh, boat version. Um, Earth Angel is not in, and Big Man in Town is not in. Every other song Aww. is there. It may be trimmed, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Big Man in Town is mostly useful to get you back from intermission. If there isn't an intermission, it doesn't really follow Dawn. Right. You know? Very true. Very and, true. And we've, we found that since we were trimming silhouettes to take the spot in the show where Earth Angel happens and do the missing verse of silhouettes there tied Tommy together just as well. Right. I see. So the whole um, knocking down, the, knocking up the jewelry store thing became tighter and we just fit it in within one stanza of silhouettes. Gotcha. So, so that took out Earth Angel. Ape is the whole song, right? I don't see how you can cut that masterpiece. <laughs> I mean, there, there are things you wouldn't cut. You wouldn't cut the Moonlight Sonata. It's so funny. Oh, my gosh. Do you ever sit in on auditions? Like, do you ever, like, just do the rehearsal piano? Or the for the, inter- the, for the longest piano? time, well, when we originally put the show together, I was behind the desk for auditions. There was Des and there was Sergio and there was me. Mm-hmm. And we would get an audition pianist to do the playing, which was great for me because I uh, had often been there. And it's hard to do two things at once. It's hard to look at what's on the page, support the singer, and judge them at the same time. So just to be behind the desk and go, no, my job is to help get the right group of performers into this company. Um, I did that probably for our first eight or nine productions, including international ones. They would fly fly me out for auditions. So very much a part of that. Rehearsals in La Jolla, yes, because I was thinking on my feet and the underscoring was still being written and vocal arrangements were being changed on the fly. So I didn't want that extra step of keeping yelling at a poor pianist. No, 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 stop. No, no, stop. Look, let me sit in. It's not fair to anybody. So I just stayed on the keys in rehearsals until the band um, sort of... Well, the band was in rehearsals too. I don't know when exactly. Um, oh, I didn't turn it over. That's why I was still the music director in La Jolla. So we, we just flo- we flowed from rehearsals into performances and... Broadway, we used a rehearsal pianist, but I still conducted the show for the first maybe two and a half years and then turned it over. Wow. Oh, how did the vocal arrangements change? Sometimes we have um, full cast support of moments. Sometimes we didn't think we wanted it in a certain place and then we added it. Sometimes we guessed we wanted it and then cut it. Sometimes... uh, does change his mind about how much of a song he wanted to hear before he went into the book scene. So things were just right. things were just changing fast. They were changing at rehearsals. There was a time when I mean we haven't talked about how we grew from this pile of records to a score, but basically in La Jolla we were staying two script pages ahead of the cast. Got it. We would finish a rehearsal day. We'd go have dinner. We'd meet at Des's and we'd figure out the next three minutes of the show. And the script that Rick and Marshall had given us at that time just had use Big Man in Town in this sequence. They hadn't split it down to these texts and then the scene and then those texts. That was done in these nighttime meetings with me and Des and Sergio. Richard Hester was there. Holly Ann, who was Des's associate conductor. I think that's all the people that were there. Um... And we'd look at it and we'd try different things. You know, you know, okay, what about that same shape but a key change? Okay, what about that same shape but we steal this part of the scene that's been following the song and stick it into the middle of the song? And we'd get to that, we'd agree about 1 a.m., we'd go, okay, that's what the shape's going to be. I went home, 
did a vocal arrangement, played it on the piano, onto a cassette, shoved the cassette under Sergio's door. <laughs> I went to sleep. He woke up. He choreographed. The next day at 10 a.m., I would teach the vocal. At 11, Sergio would teach the steps. And at noon, Des would walk in and see on its feet what we had done the night before, ready for him to filter it and polish it and stage the parts that were scene work. Unbelievable. Every so night, night after piece. night after night after night for about three weeks till we got to the other end. Three weeks. Yeah. And the miracle of Jersey Boys isn't that we somehow managed to do that. It's that, like, we tunneled out of the mountain and there was the golden spike looking at us. We'd somehow gotten a shape that had all these bookends and, and connections. and It's and unbelievable. That's this not how you do a musical. Itself. This one yeah. wrote itself. This one where it's we were so cool. divinely guided. But it was unbelievable to go... Oh my God, this has shape and form and well-made play aspects. I was there. We didn't put that there. You know, Marshall and Rick wrote a great play and the songs are great songs. And then we were all just diving off at diving boards going, okay, look, we, we've got to solve this by one o'clock because the cast is coming in at 10. And it somehow it went together into the shape it should have. We didn't oh. change it for Broadway. We barely changed it at all. When you get done in a place like La Jolla, you're supposed to have a laundry list of the 28 things you can't wait to change if the play is going to have another life. We ba barely touched it. Was it a part of the page-to-stage program at no. La Jolla? No. No. It was, uh, Des, at that point, I believe, was still the producing director, or he had just resigned as that. Anyway, he had no trouble getting a slot. So it was just, it was a main stage slot in their subscriber season. And it got extended, what, three times? Yeah. Yeah. I kept calling home and going, um, yeah, I'm going to come home in February now. <laughs> how, did, how did your family feel about that? Um, Lex was great about it. Um, she was basically raising my kid for me in his senior year of high school. Oh, senior year. I was year. dancing around. It was tough. I'm dancing around in La Jolla. Um, but I, I, you, you can't turn your back on something like that. No. You can't go, gee, I'd love to, but I really can't extend. I need to go home. Right, of so course. So Jake, Jake was great about it, and Lex was great about it, and we all survived. Well, you, you had your own Four Seasons moment. You really did. You know, like you get a Broadway show. How do you handle it? Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, no, you get, you get one that feels like it's going to work. Yes. You know, that first preview in La Jolla, we couldn't believe what the audience was doing. And we all go out at intermission because you want to over, overhear a couple of conversations. And we realize what's going on is that the audience has rushed the box office. And it's like, my sister needs to see the show and I'm going to be sitting here when they do. Six tickets for Friday. I want eight tickets for Sunday. Give me. It's like, oh my God, it's the California Gold Rush. And that, that never changed from that first La Jolla performance. It was like, I called home and said, I don't know if this is what having a hit feels like. But this is different than anything I've ever done. And the audience response wow. is different than anything I've ever done. In the old days, in the in the golden era of Jersey Boys, they would always take this part of an interview with Marshall and Rick and put it in the promo where I th Marshall was like, this is the show where the wives 
and girlfriends bring the husbands and boyfriends too and then the husbands and boyfriends come back the next night by themselves the the rags to riches the italian lifestyle the money laundering the the music it's it's, it's just delicious yeah i don't i don't know if the guys came back but i had my own private and somewhat ruder uh, take on it. I think these these husbands were dragged into the theater by their musical attending wives, mm-hmm. and gradually unfolded your arms and, and uh, their arms. And by the middle of Act Two, I'm going, y'all are going to get lucky tonight. You know this? <laughs> you did the right thing. You came to Jersey Boys with your wife. She loves you right now. <laughs> Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. That's so oh, fun. what a night. <laughs> Bobby. So look, so Um, when, two questions. When you were arranging the show and you were reading the script, like, you know, just like diving so deep into it, did you, did you love it when you first read it? Or did you have to kind of keep a distance when you were arranging for it? Oh boy, I have a couple answers to that. One okay. is, when I first signed on, when I agreed to do the show, there was barely anything to read. Rick and Marshall had finished a treatment, maybe a 10-page summary. And there was a meeting between Des and Rick and Marshall, and I got to read Des's notes that he sent them as an email the next day. So that's sort of all, all I had at the beginning. Um, we got to La Jolla. We had a couple of nights to do this kind of work I described to you before. And then the cast joined. So it wasn't a matter of loving it. It was a matter of having a job to do. Right. And an incredible amount of work ahead to just see the surface. Um, By the time we finished, I was really impressed with what we had done and proud of my part in it. And I thought we turned out a pretty darn good show. It took the audience reacting to it for me to figure out how good. Right, of course. Like, how do you know it's a hit until you get it out there? That kind of idea. So, so well, when when did the show, the, like the book, when did that start getting written? Just start? We or had, like when the rights were out? We had script pages by the time the cast joined. Okay. I don't remember whether we flew to La Jolla having already received scripts or whether they were waiting for us there. Or whether it was piecemeal that we were getting three pages here and six pages here and they were staying ahead of us in the same kind of progress. I, I'm sorry, I've got some amnesia about exactly how that worked. No, so, so but basically 2004 was the infancy, like, or yeah. the conception. Yeah, I think I went out to La Jolla in August, and I think we played to an audience in November, and it was just all going on every day and every night. Who approached Frankie and Bob to get the story, like, to, just to get the musical? They approached Rick and Marshall. Oh! <gasps> I didn't know that. Bob had seen Mamma Mia, and he said to Frankie, "There's a, sh- there's, there should be a show about us." And I don't know exactly <laughs> what the connection, you know, a late night Broadway poker game or whatever that made these guys the people that Bob went. I know who I, I know who I want to talk to, but I know there was a meeting with Frankie and Bob and Rick and Marshall, or maybe Frankie and Bob and Marshall, and then Marshall brought Rick in. Would you like to co-write this with me? I don't remember exactly. Because I wasn't part of it yet. Um, But I remember, at least the story that I have, is that the first couple of meetings were like, 
no, we're not going to do Mamma Mia with your songs. We don't want to make up a story about a girl and her mom on an island just so we can use, you know, 28 of your songs. Um, I don't, until we know what the show is, there is no project. And then one day they started talking about, I think Frankie said, uh, I wasn't there. I think Fr Frankie is reported to say, you know, we were older than people thought we were. Well, why is that? Well, some of us had done time. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, um, and they start looking into the rise and fall of the group. And by yes. two hours later, Rick and Marshall were like, well, that's your show. If you're brave enough, it's you guys, warts and all, the rise and fall of a brilliant group. We would have to not do Mamma Mia. We would have to do you guys. Right. The story. That, that's the story. And that's, just that's, just because you're that interesting, just because the story is that compelling. You know, if you'd had boring lives and a boring backstory, there wouldn't have been a show. Right. And 15 years later, it's still playing to, well, when the world isn't in an extended intermission, yeah. it's still right. playing it's to packed houses. Still playing yeah. the same song, the same show. Like, <laughs> we need it. Oh, oh my. So, but Bane, so it all came together within a year in ish show that people could attend in la jolla in november unbelievable i think that's that's the between buying the ingredients and laying them out and getting the mixing bowl to serving the cake yeah was about about three months maybe four months in 2004 okay and they had the fun that's, like, that's, that's fast that's fast i worked worked on shows that took three years four years to develop right that's what you always hear about broadway like it, it takes forever oh my gosh Right. And remember, this was one of the last times a show never didn't, it didn't have a, uh, a table read. It didn't have a 29-hour reading. No we just went to production. And from production, we came in. Unreal. I, and the cast, like you have that. the two like, best, best actor and supporting actor winning the Tony for the show, too. And there was no table read, no like extra no, work, no. nothing. It's unreal. No. I can't believe it. And, oh, so, well, you know, let's dive into the fun, like, an even more fun part. So you brought up Dawn before. Um, so Dawn to David and me, a few actors that we've spoken to, everybody that we ask thinks that they are, that's, like, the best part of the show. And th yeah. there's a moment, there's a moment in the show that's not on the cast recording that I always get so mad because the audience is clapping over it. It's the, 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 the that, that bass line um, right before right before um, they sing that first chord and Frankie sings his little solo, the audience is always clapping over it and I never get to hear it. I always have to really like go like this with my ears whenever I see it. <laughs> and that 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 initial um, that um, that five to one on the bass um, is not reflected on the cast recording it's actually one of my favorite moments in the show because the um, mm -hmm. musical moments because the the that bass line going to one mixed with that um it's a, a major seventh chord that they're singing there right um it's just so mysterious and just right and you know that they're gonna about to take off um so and, and and then you end up with the I I, I love the way uh, when I guess this happened when you guys were having those meetings until one a.m. where in the middle of the song 
dialogue would be put in and the the two main moments that I think of are Sherry when um, the clarinet starts playing that solo right before when, when they're moving into that new space and then um, Bob Gaudio's little piece right before they move to the back of the stage in Dawn mm-hmm. and I, 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 the only thing I remember from the first time I saw the show in Fort Lauderdale and me and Gia saw it on that same weekend I don't really remember much, but I do, and I will always remember that that moment in Dawn when they go to the back of the stage because it is so brilliantly staged, everything coming together, again, in the most perfect way. Well, I, wanna, I have so many things I want to say about what you just said. Let me address that one first. Um, and going back to Des and what he did with audience perspective. Yes, he puts you backstage by having them face the proscenium and create an arena that you're somehow backstage crew looking over the heads of the seasons. But look when else he's done that. In the beginning of My Eyes Adored You, Frankie is three quarters away from the audience. Des wants us to be eavesdropping on his pain, not being performed to. When he hears about Francine's death, he sits on the bench facing upstage. The sequence with the nurse handing him the ashes and the sequence with the priest are done with us eavesdropping on a guy who's just lost his daughter, not being performed to. So he, he's constantly, if you think about Dawn, the Broadway version had three locations. It had a TV taping, which was done obliquely to downright, a middle performance where they're singing to tonight's audience facing downstage, and then the high proscenium where they completely reverse that. What Des is doing is making you and the audience scoot around. When Richard and I were in Amsterdam with Jersey Boys there, they took us to a production of a, something called Soldier of Orange, which was literally done in an airplane hangar. The audience was the central round. All of the space around the round were stage sets, And the audience would turn, and all of a sudden, there's a a beach scene. And then they go back, and there's a palace scene. But you and the audience are being zoomed around the pie while the actors have been preset in their next, you know, their next set. So Des did that without all the technology, just by turning the axis of which way the actors were pointing. So did you work together on that? Staging? Yeah. I was in the in the room at the piano while Des was doing staging. <laughs> I I didn't go, hey, you know what would be interesting? Because that's not good. Uh. Um, let, do you want me to get into a little more detail about Dawn? I mean, we it's do. Sort of a great example of all these all these topics we want to talk about. Yeah. So let's talk about your boom, boom. That follows the end of My Eyes Adored You which is a very weird plagal cadence on the three chord. It ends in, in outer space. And Frankie stops singing, and then the band sort of finishes for three or four bars that don't really get you tonically home. 99 times out of 100, the audience holds their applause and then gives us warm applause from Eyes Adored You. When that applause crests, the conductor takes us into the boom. Every now and then... The audience steps on the ending of My Eyes Adore You. They stop playing. They start clapping. The conductor is then instructed, forget the subtlety tonight. Just page through those bars. Because if you don't get through those last four bars of My Eyes Adore You, let the bass player turn his page and cue him with the G natural. 
uh, there's going to be this eggy pause between the end of their applause and the next event. So you may have seen the show in Lauderdale. Um, on, this is not a bad thing about Fort Lauderdale, people forgive me. Maybe it was a less sophisticated audience, or maybe it was just that night a lot of people were very excited about My Eyes Adored You. Because if they started clapping, that's when you lose, I think, the bourbon more often than anything else. Second point, you identified a major seven chord. If you really analyze that chord, you're looking at four seasons, but there's five singers. Titus is backstage making the fifth note in that chord because when the seasons did it, Frankie sang lead, and then all four of them sang background. I needed five voices. You know what? That's I what I know. knew, I knew there were there was, I knew there were more than four notes there. But I didn't. I didn't know what. There you go. Wow. Couldn't make that chord without five voices. It's an interesting colored chord. You need the tenth and the major seventh, and one three five. That's that's five people. So, who who was, what which part of the chord was Titus singing there? Okay. Highest note. Frankie had melody. Pretty as a midsummer yeah. morn, but the highest of the ooh notes. Yeah. Was Titus? Wow. Okay, so now I have one more Don story. Almost nothing I said changed between La Jolla and Broadway, but this is one that did. Our original La Jolla Don was shorter. It had the television studio. It had a speech, not the one Bob does about the girl, the people overseas and the girls at the diner. It had a speech, and then they went right to the back. When La Jolla was over, Gaudio had a laundry list for Des, 12 things he just begged to change. He got two of them. One of them was Expanding Dawn. So the whole Dawn Go Away, which is done downstage Oh, after that us, hit, right? Bum, wasn't, yeah. wasn't, yeah, that was not in the La Jolla production. That was added for Broadway. And I'm, I'm wrong. The speech about um, the girl with circles under her eyes, that wasn't, that was in La Jolla, but that must have been the speech in between the TV for thing and the proscenium thing. Okay, so the, so they they added the speech about uh, uh, the British invasion. Oh, that, no, was, that was always in it. That was always, yeah. Once we hit tempo, there was the out of tempo verse, and then the dum dum yes. with the tubular bell lead, and then Ed yes. Sullivan video. Okay, that that, was so that one there. was always there. Okay. Yeah. We we love how every moment in the show is planned as we've already talked about extensively um but there's so much foreshadowing going on within the underscoring um the the one that always stands out to me is um my eyes adored you is playing at mangio's with mary um and it's you know you're one of the f- you're one of the first people that have ever picked that up I've sometimes given quizzes to a band from a company. Or it's been playing this for three years. What is the mandolin player playing? And it takes them a day or two. It's the bridge of my eyes adored you turned into a mandolin waltz in the tempo and feel of come back to Sorrento. But they are falling in love to the music they will eventually break up to. Thank you. So there, there's, okay, there's a movie quote. I don't even know what the movie is. I, I'm a movie person. I don't know. But... It's, it's a quote that says, you break up with people for the same reason you got with them in the first place. And I don't, like, do you believe that in terms of well, Mary and Frankie's 
long experience of breaking up with people. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Gee, I don't know. Yeah, well, either way... Sometimes you're drawn to to somebody for one reason, but it's something else that breaks you up. Mm -hmm, Maybe. It it depends. But what you did absolutely, like, clinched that idea. And I think that's just the most beautiful, heartbreaking thing. And was that... Like, did you just come up with that easily? Because it totally makes sense. I feel like if you ask a girl that question, like, if if you asked... Like, if you gave me... us a list of like all right songs okay, okay so which one of these is gonna play when they meet just for dramatic effect i feel like a girl would get it and a guy would be like ah, i don't really know so that's just that's just my theory but um I, how did just, how did you come up with it i just love music as storytelling yes. and again this is sort of a both and thing there was a, a grounded reason for doing it and there was also an artistic reason yeah. i originally had come back to sorrento in there it's public domain tune And word came down from the Dodger organization, can you guys, as much as possible, stick to public domain or Gaudio copyrights so we don't have to clear a whole bunch of copyrights in addition to the license we have to use all of his writing with crew? And there were numbers here and there um, that we substituted. We had something else in place and then Trance dropped in because it was a similar song, Mm -hmm. but Gaudio had written it. in the case of Come Back to Sorrento, we were perfectly allowed to use an old Italian folk song. Mm-hmm. But the chance to use a Gaudio song, so like I was thinking that way, and I went, oh, wait a minute. This is sort of where they fall in love. Right. Is there anything in my Isidority that could be played in this tempo, in this feel? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and it was kind so, of that fast. So that's where the ones that got away came from. No. <laughs> no. No. Again, this, there, oh, Sorry to disappoint. The ones that got away do not refer to moments that we originally thought were going to be in the musical, but ended up not in the musical. It's a list generated by Bob Gaudio for the playbill of these are records that the Seasons or Frankie are proud of that didn't get treated. So treated? you, I, I didn't get included in the musical. Oh yeah. Okay. But some of them we never we never dreamed about including them. We never thought of including them. There was no, we were never going to use Greece. Yeah. We were going to use Swearing to God, but it got bumped in favor of Ragdoll at oh. the end. Here, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you uh, stuff you don't know. After the big three, in the show the way it is now, Sherry, Big Girls, Walk Like a Man, the next song you hear is December 6301 a night. In the sketch we did in Dez's living room late one night in La Jolla, we went from there to a There Were Always Girls, and a four-song medley of Ronnie O, Connie, Marlena, and Candy Girl, and ah! then Ragdoll. And only after that did we go to December 63. We needed to take serious time out of Act One. The girls' medley we just threw on the floor. Ragdoll, we weren't really happy with the way Swearing to God was playing at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We went, wait a minute, can't we use Ragdoll, which we all loved, put it there, then it becomes not, o- not only a triumphal moment of the Hall of Fame, but also a nostalgia moment. It's the yes. song that you haven't heard. You're going to be so happy to hear it then. So Swearing to God went on the floor, and Candy Girl showed up oh, later yes, in the underscoring. Did. Amazing. Um, <laughs> but Marlena, Ronnie, and uh, Kanye O 
were not there. And I'm not sure if those three songs are part of Ones Who Got Away, but that wasn't what was required to make that list. It was just records Bob and Frankie were proud of. I love that. that and was show. Silence is Golden ever supposed to be in the show? Just okay, just so as just underscore. underscore, right. Okay. Were there any that you wish were sung in the show that weren't? There is one song that Nick Massey wrote called Little Pony that is so embarrassing <laughs> that I kept threatening. Um, anytime things got tough, I kept threatening <laughs> to put it into the show. So I'm going to put it in. I'm going to put in Little Pony. That. You make me mad one more time. Oh, little Pony's going? You, you, yeah, I do, but just the fact that you, because Ragdoll was like, is, you loved it growing up and it's fun and it, it's, a, it's a nostalgia moment. It's just, I love that that was the reasoning why you wanted that in there. Like at the end for the holiday. we cr- we cried when we cut it and there was a chance to put it back. Okay. We're swearing swearing to God wasn't was really weird? making a song point. It was just mm-hmm. a more historically accurate sense of the kind of song that was being done during that year. Right. You know, much better to go back and sing a great song that we didn't. And make all, room all for. the moves that they were doing were coming back. The the. Um, uh, and and the the going up with yep. the arms. It was it was. It w- Sergio built an incredible vocabulary and it was fluid and it could go from song to song things could come back and you have this wonderful feeling I've seen this before mm-hmm. but never a feeling of oh I'm bored with a step don't have any more steps right. it was also really useful once the show was up and open and we were doing press and promotion and publicity events to be able to say alright well I want to do today's show wants us to do a Christmas song yeah but we need to stage that in about a half hour. Can't we steal the moves from yes. <laughs> this song or that song? Can we talk about the Christmas we album? We love it. Were you sure? In, were you involved in it? Oh God, it's gonna sound like the Ron show. I'm sorry. It was my idea. Oh ah! wow! Yeah, what? I, I, oh, I was God. I was listening to the cast album and I went, we could do another album. We could do Christmas songs in the style of the show. Not the style of the seasons, that, that record existed. Right. But what if we did a record and it was Jersey Boys takes on Christmas carols and well-known holiday songs and a few surprises? And what if we got various Frankies from all over the world to sing lead? And I brought the idea to, I brought the um, idea to Bob Gaudio and he loved it. And he talked to Rhino and they agreed to release it. And it just happened very quickly. We, Thank we had you. About Merry Christmas to me. That is my present. I wow. cannot. Okay, you have to know. I'm. David knows I am the biggest Christmas person. I have a Christmas tree tattoo right here. Like my mom. Wow. Like, that's. She loves Christmas. There's usually a Christmas scene in like every. It's like mafia movie. Every mom movie. Anything Italian involved. <laughs> why? Do you know why there isn't an actual? Christmas Eve scene, Christmas morning scene. You have a what a night, which of course is Christmas, but I, why not? I can get, I can guess why not. It's something that was never talked about, at least not with me in the room. We are taking the year very seriously. We're dividing the show into quarters, and we're dividing the career of the group, the rise and fall of the group, into spring, summer, autumn, winter. Christmas would naturally fall in the winter section of the show where way too much is going on to mix our messages with, oh, and how do you feel about Christmas or how do you feel about holidays or how do you feel about gifts or how do you feel about the baby Jesus? You know, to have 
um, the guy I insist on calling, um, oh, of course, it goes right out of my head. Anyway, San, oh, Santa Pimp in uh, <laughs> December 63, what a night. Santa Pimp comes in with the reefer and um, Santa Pimp. To, to have him in a Santa hat is probably as close to Christmas as we right. get. And what's, what's more amazing is now that you say that, Frankie has that line, summer's in Jersey. So he's not not only are we in the winter, he is talking about summer. summer. Right. Yeah. The first word first word of the winter section is summer. Wow. Yeah. I I just realized that overlay there. Yeah, because Bob Christmas first summer. Oh my god. That, that gives me chills. Oh, David, I'll give you one more for the music theater uh, theory geek in you. Um, spring and summer about the rise of the group. Autumn and winter about the fall of the group. So autumn is the end of the autumn. Uh, projection screen that says the word autumn goes at the very end of Big Man in Town, and Bum. there's and the, but there's a guitar growl down. It goes down to get you into and winter. Bow and the brass has a fall off. So the two seasons of decay, there's a fall off aspect to the beat where it happens that we don't do in spring and summer. So I know the horn fall off That's in geekery. winter. Total geekery. Yes, I know the horn fall off in winter. Now that you explain the decay, that makes so much sense. I, I, I guess I've never heard. I'm going to have to listen for it next time. I've never been able to hear that, that guitar. F- um, wow. Are you ki- that blows my mind. Okay, so part of supervising a show, part of the maintenance thing where you're just flying around seeing the London company and seeing the tour company is that you have to fix things that have gone wonky since you were there last. And one of the things that keeps happening to that growl down is that sound departments keep advancing to the next queue and cutting it off. So you may very well have seen the show 20 times and managed not to hear it or hear it rarely enough that it doesn't Say something to you. I always put it back. The rule on Jersey Boys for the actors in particular is the last person that talks to you, take the note. Right. Take right. the note. And then somebody will come and say, give you the exact opposite of the note, take the note. <laughs> okay. Well, then thank you for all these segues. So that leads to, like, so let's say, let's say Tommy misses his cue at the beginning after Silhouettes. Are, are yep. they fucked? Because the beginning has to be, like, you got to be on it with the music. So if can you get fired if you mess up, if you're too slow, if you're too fast? No, and no. Yeah. And I, can, I think maybe I've seen two performances out of a couple of thousand where Tommy failed to make it in and all we do is loop an extra time till he catches up. Um, remember, there's not just audio for the actors. There's a TV screen of the conductor hung on the rail that they can consult. So if Tommy says, you know, his thing about uh, Native Son... And for some reason, the audience is loud or noisy or something, or the, or the sound monitors are off and he doesn't hear. He's still seeing the conductor on the rail going yeah. up, down, or pointing right at the camera. He's going to make it in. Got it. Ah, this is so cool. I was, I was actually, yeah. I, it's, it's, it's very rare that that it happens. Thank God. But I, I was there once when um, he missed the entrance, but they they weren't able to loop back. They just had to keep going. Um, so it was very interesting. Yeah. Um, would the top of Sesuare La mm-hmm. be considered an overture? 
Hmm, not by me. I, I, I'm old school, and I think an overture is a three-song medley of Act One songs that gets the audience quiet and then brings the curtain up. It is an extended introduction. It's five times a two-bar vamp with some orchestration development across the, the ten bars. And it's part of a wonderful, I think wonderful, fucking with the audience that Des wanted to start the evening with. I mean, you're there to see Jersey Boys. You're going to see Jersey Boys. Gosh, and we're going to see Jersey Boys. Oh, there's the speech about cell phones. Okay, here comes the show. Wow, I love this song. First of all, we let it go five vamps instead of four. Music is based on two times, four times, eight times, 16 times. The minute we miss the fourth time and nobody sings and we hear five, we just don't know where we are. Are we going to have to wait for another three more? And then Yannick starts to talk and you're going, okay, first of all, Who's the black guy? <laughs> Second of all, why is he speaking French? Third, this isn't the seasons, is it? Fourth, are we in the wrong Yes. Theater? So you wanted to fuck with us? Absolutely. Why? Just like when we have when we have Donnie kill Stosh, because it's Jersey humor. <gasps> oh my god. Is that true? No, that's not true. I'm just fucking with you. Uh, it's it's all over Tommy's character. It's Donnie and Stosh, and it's how we begin the show. We look at the audience and do something weird, and then go, yeah, we're fucking with you. Here come Tommy and Nick DeVito. And- yeah, and yeah. That's, why, that's why the transition into silhouettes is so abrupt. Yeah. But it's beautiful. It- we just it's made like you think psych. you're on the wrong show, psych. <laughs> right. You wanted to fuck with us, David. That's it. That's, uh, that's, that's it. it. You wanted to- Amazing. Did it, did it work? It worked. I can't give you anything but love under Francine um, using little kids sounds, those kinds of sounds. Yeah. And that's very heartbreaking because, of course, as we quoted at the beginning, it's like, I can't give you anything but love, daddy, which comes in yeah. act two. Um, how did you come up with that, with the children's music sound? I watched a Lifesavers commercial when I was about 15. Okay. And this Lifesavers commercial stayed with me for the next couple dozen years. Mm -hmm. It was a 30-second spot. All you saw was a dad and his little kid's son from the back on a hill at sunset. And the text was, Daddy goes, going, going. The son disappears and he says, gone. And there's a beat and the kid says, do it again, Daddy. Broke my heart. Do it again, Daddy. Uh. So when Rick and Marshall had handed me the fact that little Francine had gone up on the coffee table and sung I Can't Give You Anything But Love, Daddy, I wanted to do nostalgia about Francine. That comes back when Frankie's leading up to taking the phone call about her death. That comes back again. Um, And in those two spots, to give the lead to a soprano recorder, like a little tonette like every kid plays, and to phrase it, as if you're dealing with little eight-year-old lungs. So it goes... And there's nothing but an acoustic guitar behind it, which to me is like Frankie on the hill, and there's little eight-year-old Francine. And I just created that Lifesavers commercial. Thank you. Um, Everything from... See, Ron, thank you so much. These are the answers that we were hoping for. We all forage. We all forage. We all find things in our lives to go, you know, that would make a great thing. I'm sure Hal Binkley walks around, you know, 
looking at a sunset and going, I could use that. <laughs> uh, everyone, How Howell Blinkley is the light was the lighting designer of Jersey Boys and a major lighting designer on Broadway. Yeah, then he, he did some Hamilton thing too. Oh, I don't you know, know what that just, is. Just <laughs> Do you like Hamilton? I adore Hamilton. Yeah. I was lucky enough to see it at the public before it came in. Oh wow! And then see it again on on Broadway. That's awesome. I I I didn't know we were allowed to do those things. Mm-hmm. Lynn Manuel just astonished yeah. me. We can do that, right? You can I do know. that. It's, but it took him seven years <laughs> to write it too. So it really, it just—you never know. You really never know. But either way, it's like, okay. I love that he he carved through these Broadway rules. You know, we all sat there and and learned our lessons about near rhymes and true rhymes and identities and what you can do rhythmically and what you can do with loops and what you can't do with loops. And he just went, yeah, I'm going to tell the story. I'm going to do what yeah. I want. And with, well, and with what you, you did with the chronological order of the songs too, like with those kinds of liberties and just that creativity. Um, so David and I, like our hearts were broken when we found out that like Sherry wasn't on American bandstand. Um, like in real life. And there were, um, so for example, um, this is just a list of the songs like released like in order. So in 1962, okay, so we figure that the show starts in 1959. Of course, this is not a killjoy moment about, about the show. We love it, but this is important to point out. So in 1962, you had Big Girls Don't Cry, Apple of My Eye, I Can't Give You Anything But Love. 1963, you had Walk Like a Man, Silhouettes, Candy Girl. So as we know, everything definitely got mixed up um 1964 stay but that's an act two song silence is golden 64 dawn earth angel 64 we're like we're, everything's all over the place we're so confused um and the biggest one i think so like in 1965 that's working my way um and and they're like their sunday kind of love uh, but of course we also know that working what like, that was used with Nick Massey to show according to the script, the charts. Um, yeah, according to the script, they said "Worked in My Way" puts us back on the charts. Right. right. All right. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna be tough with you two. Okay. Please. I'm gonna quote Des for a minute, and say there is truth, and there is fact, and let's not confuse the two. We're not doing a documentary. If we were doing a documentary about the seasons, we deserve to have our hands slapped. That's not even the order that Nick and Tommy leave the group. Uh-huh. Right. There's lots of things that aren't historically true, but they're theatrically true. They're storytelling true. They make an elegant piece that's balanced so many ways and makes you feel so many things. And you come to the end of it and there's a satisfaction that would not be there to that degree if we had been completely faithful to the facts of the world. We, we allowed ourselves that. And just like I allowed myself not to recreate the vocal arrangements that were on the season's records or the tempos, we took liberties. We took liberties to make a better story, to make better through lines, to make better parallels, to make better contrasts. And I don't think any of us would, not only aren't we ashamed of it, I don't think we'd consider it to be a flaw. No, it's not at all. It's just... No, 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 not at all. You're, and, you're blameless. And that is, but I'm so chronology sorry was not our way. goal. Not what I meant. Yeah. Making you feel things yeah. and giving you a great night in the theater was our goal. 
So although there's a lot of chronologically accurate stuff in Act One, we were more interested, again, in that toboggan ride. Can we make you feel like you haven't heard 14 songs, you've just been on one ride and you're ooshed the other end and it's intermission. In the second act, we're paying less attention to that pacing and more attention to thematic connections. These are songs, a period of the, of the show where Bob was writing a lot of songs about loss. Great. Let's use those where Tommy leaves the group. Let's have Frankie go, why don't you stay? Let's have Frankie go, let's hang on to what we've got. Um, at, at times when somebody's leaving. It's not... We didn't change any lyrics, by the way. We stayed with it. So if you look at Stay, you know, your mama won't mind, your daddy won't mind if we have another dance. Frankie didn't want to dance with Tommy, but he did want him to stay. And he calls him girl, but we're not thinking that that means anything. Um, We're just using the song Stay to point the moment where somebody isn't staying. And then to audience surprise, at least the first time they see the show, somebody else doesn't stay really, really quickly. That's definitely part of the conscious genius. They gave us a lot of songs. They gave us a lot of songs that had subtexts. Subtexts. You can use Dawn to go, girl, you're too good for me, and you should get with him instead of me, or I don't deserve you. You can use stay and... You can use work in my way to say everything's going to be all right now. Right. Even if that's not what the song might have been written to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they're close parallels. You know, I just realized something. That differentiation of truth and fact was something I heard from Des. Mm-hmm. But I also heard it. My godmother was Madeline Langle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time, <gasps> children, children's book author. And she used to say that. Your godmother? I would go, is, I would go, is that true? She said, yeah, it's true. It's not factual, but it's true. See, that's, that's it. That's what we, we love do. that. It's not true. Yeah. It's not factual, it's but it's true. Right. It's theatrically true. It's storytelling true. It is. And nobody has ever asked for their money back because the songs are out of order. <laughs> no, never. No, <laughs> ever, never, ever, never. ever, ever, ever. <laughs> no, and you know what? It's, the it's fact is they keep coming back because they're out of order. They keep coming mm. back because they're out of order. Because the show has an internal logic and an internal flow that right. is a nice ride. I've had a surprising number of people have seen Jersey Boys more than once. And if I ask somebody who has, I had such a good time last time. I just want to have that good time again. And friends, you can have that good time again because this was only part one of our deep dive with Broadway legend Ron Melrose, the man behind the music arrangements of Jersey Boys, the man who made some of the most iconic songs in music history even more memorable for generations to come. Ron, thank you so much for coming on the show. Anchor, thank you for hosting us. We would not be here without you. And all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and sharing the JV love with David and me. But trust us, this is only the tip of the iceberg. So stay tuned for part two with a special surprise. That's all we'll say. And follow us on social media for more teasers. We're on Instagram at SilhouettesJVPodcast underscore, Facebook at SilhouettesJVPodcast, our new Facebook group, SilhouettesJVPodcast group, and you can reach us through email at SilhouettesJVPodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. A salute.